It was 2004, and Brent Teague was sharing the gospel of Christ in the nation of Niger. While he was driving in the desert, Al-Qaeda operatives pulled up alongside him and opened fire. So the first bullet went through my knee, and then the second bullet went through uh, the shin of my leg. I just missed the uh, main artery by about a millimeter, and uh, I had no hope for survival. I was laying in the desert praying, uh, getting ready to go to heaven when the Lord spoke to me and told me my mission wasn't over on earth. Jesus never promised his followers an easy path. In fact, he told his disciples that the world would hate them. He sent them out as sheep among wolves. Jesus' words came true in the life of the apostles, and they're still coming true today in the lives of his followers around the world. Join host Todd Nettleton as we hear their inspiring stories and learn how we can help right now on the Voice of the Martyrs Radio Network. Welcome again to the Voice of the Martyrs Radio. My name is Todd Nettleton. You know, next month, we're going to be celebrating five years of God's goodness, allowing Voice of the Martyrs Radio to share the stories of persecuted Christians and of God's work in hostile and restricted nations. I kind of feel like we just got started, so it's hard to believe it's been half a decade that we've been sharing the stories of our persecuted brothers and sisters all over the world. As we think about this milestone, we're looking back at some of the most powerful stories that God has allowed us to share here on VOM Radio. Today, we're going to hear from Brent and Shelley Teague. They've been gospel workers in West Africa for more than 20 years. We first heard this story in 2015, and as you listen today, I think you'll understand why we thought it was worth hearing again. To begin, I asked Brent and Shelley how God had called them to leave the comfort of the United States and serve him overseas. Actually, I first started feeling called to Africa when I was still a very small child. I always loved Africa, loved when the missionaries came at our church and spoke. And so when I was 18, I went off to college to prepare for ministry. And I had the opportunity to go as an intern from my college to Africa for the very first time. And God confirmed in my heart that's what he wanted me to do. So after college, I left and went to the country of Ghana where I worked. And uh, about eight months after I was there, I met Brent. And I'll kind of let him share the rest of the story. I uh, grew up as a missionary kid. My parents were missionaries in West Africa. But I was very shy. So when the Lord started speaking to me about being a minister, I was like, you've got the wrong person. But God, when he calls us, he prepares us. And so I trained to be an engineer in college, but it was at a college retreat that I went to a spiritual retreat. And uh, God just got a hold of me and really touched my heart. I had just a deep desire to reach out to uh, particularly uh, Muslim people groups. And so after college, I... uh, Went out as a uh, single intern on a two-year assignment. Ended up meeting my wife out there. So God called you to Muslims, but not specifically to Africa or Muslims in Africa? Or was it just your growing up, you felt comfortable there? And not Well, what I first thought, because I was doing a degree in engineering, is that I would be a tent maker missionary and go with an engineering firm into a closed country. That's what I first thought. And then as I was graduating, the missions department called me up, and this shows how old I am. The missionaries were just getting PCs, so they wanted me to come and assemble PCs so that they wouldn't have to pay custom duties because there was no custom on parts. So that's how I ended up back in West Africa. Wow. (laughs) I'm not saying how old you are, but uh, let's talk about your story. I mean, when I think about 
the number of people that we could talk to who are Americans who've had a face-to-face encounter with al-Qaeda and walked away and are still telling the story. There's not very many of those. Share with us how you encountered al-Qaeda and how God really did some amazing things to allow you to be here and tell the story. Well, I really shouldn't be alive. It was May 11th of 2004, and I was going up to a village about 90 kilometers north of the capital city of Niamey in in Niger. And I had a couple Bible school students with me and their families. Uh, We had three children in the car. And uh, these uh, al-Qaeda operatives were in another vehicle that came alongside our vehicle in broad daylight and opened fire with a machine gun through the driver's door. So the first bullet went through my knee, and then the second bullet went through uh, the shin of my leg. I just missed the uh, main artery by about a millimeter. So wow. I got the car stopped, then they commandeered our vehicle and followed in theirs and took us off-road and robbed us. And uh, at that time, they were carjacking, and then they were taking the cars and chopping them up and then reselling the parts to finance their their operations. But anyway, I ended up in the middle of the desert, and uh, I had no hope for, honestly, no hope for survival. They discussed finishing us off, but uh, the commander decided not to waste the ammunition. They thought I was going to die anyway. There were 12 other attacks that same year in that same area. I'm the only driver that survived uh, the the different attacks. So God just did a miracle. I should be dead. I was laying in the desert praying, getting ready to go to heaven when the Lord spoke to me and told me my mission wasn't over on earth. Uh, The miracle is is that there was an anonymous phone call to the federal trooper's office, the gendarmerie in the capital city, telling them that I'd been shot, that I was critically wounded, and giving them my location where I'd been dumped in the desert. And the miracle is is that that phone call came 30 minutes before I was ever attacked. Otherwise, they wouldn't have gotten to me on time. I don't know how God did that, but it happened. The week before this had happened, our family had actually been traveling back and forth to this village every day. I was doing a teacher training for children's workers. So I had taken the day off with the girls. Our girls were still small at the time in elementary school. So we were actually at a recreation center playing with them. When the news came, there was a member from the church that came in and got me. I remember I called the pastor that was in the same city where they said they had taken him and he was in a hospital there. And In West Africa, you never say over the phone that someone has died. And you generally say they're very, very sick. And so as I was asking about his condition, they kept saying he's been shot, and it's bad. It's really, really bad. And I would ask, is he dead? Well, it's really, really bad. So I didn't know if he was alive or not. But during that time and trying to figure out what to do, I just felt God speak to me and say, you're going to be back in Niger ministering. And that just gave me an assurance that God was going to take care of my family and the hope that my husband was going to be okay. And I remember calling my mom first and telling her what happened. And I said, pray for me because I need to call Brent's parents. And when I talked to his dad, his dad kept saying, is he alive? And I said, yes, he's alive. And he asked, do you know for sure? And I said, well, no, I don't have confirmation, but I have peace in my heart. God's spoken to me and he's going to be okay. And so God was speaking to you You had really the voice of God speak to you as well out in the desert. Tell us that part of the story. Well, I was praying. At first, I was really questioning God why he permitted me to be in the situation I was at. And then I realized I'm going to be seeing Jesus soon. I need to have a better attitude. And so then I just started worshiping the Lord and thanking him for saving me and for all he's done in my life and thanking him for the privilege of serving him. 
And then it's when I started praying for Shelly and my two daughters that I heard this voice. I mean, it's like talking right here. And it was a question. God just spoke to me and said, who told you your mission on earth is over? And uh, it was just shocking. And then I just responded and said, well, Lord, if, if you want me to work and continue to work, I'm willing, but you're going to have to do a miracle in a hurry. Although I didn't know that 40 minutes before he'd already done the first miracle. After you recovered, and we won't go into the whole long story of recovery and some more you know, miracles that God did to bring you back and back to health, did you feel a, a new sense of passion or a new sense of God's hand because you could have died. I mean, you, your ministry could have been over. Clearly, God has something that he wanted you to do. Did you kind of sense that? Was that a burden? Was it just a, an excitement? How did you respond to that? Well, I think the experience has really changed my perspective because when I was laying there at death's door, I realized at that point that what we spend most of our time searching after things, material things, uh, positions and all those kinds of things really are temporal, and they're they're gone just like that. And what really counts, the only two things that mattered to me when I was dying was my family and my relationship with the Lord and what I was doing for him. And I realized when I go to meet him, it doesn't matter what house I lived in or what car I drove or what clothes I, I have a habit of wearing. What matters is, did I respond to his will and did I accomplish the mission he had for me and so it's like a second chance. And I got to think about what were some opportunities missed? What is the Lord? And so I really had a renewed and refined vision. And as a result of going back to Niger, in that area where I was shot, I'd been trying to get approval, permission from the chiefs and the villages along the Niger River to preach, and they'd been hostile and refused. Well, after being shot and coming back, when they saw me, they said, you shouldn't be alive. God's with you. And so they opened and gave me opportunity in village after village along the Niger River to uh, preach the gospel. God opened more doors. He opened more doors. And, you know, even in personal evangelism, I've led many people to the Lord sharing the testimony. And then I pull up my pants leg and I show the, the scars and from the wounds and all that that are still there. God did lots of miracles to heal me, and he healed the bone and all that he did. But my wife was actually praying and asking the Lord to heal the scars, and the Lord spoke and said, no, I'm believing that as a testimony. Well, a lot of people have come to Christ because of this testimony. And so I wouldn't want to go through it again, but I do thank the Lord for it. That's a very profound statement. Has it given you a way to speak and encourage people who are going through it now, who are going through either persecution or some other form of hardship, sickness, suffering, uh, to be able to say, hang on, hang on, God's doing something. Yeah, it it's, uh, helps me to encourage others to say, you know, I mean, I don't know why I'm alive and others are dead, but if you are alive and if you are going through this, God's going to use this for his glory. A lot of times I think we misinterpret that passage out of Romans because we read it and we say all things work together for good for them that love God and called according. But it's it's not according to our, you know, when we talk our about good there, our good. definition of good, <laughs> but it works together for God's good mm -hmm. and for his purpose and for his mission. And in some sense, biblically, it's actually a privilege to suffer because greater is your reward. But when you're going through it, you, you don't feel privileged. <laughs> You'd like to give the privilege to someone else. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Shelly, what about you? As you know, really in many ways having your husband return from the dead to you because he should have died, 
What has that done to your faith and to your desire to serve the Lord? As I said, I'd always wanted to be a missionary, even as a child, and never once through all of this did that desire leave. And in fact, I remember our youngest daughter, when Brent was going through recovery, it took us eight months in the States. I remember her going and sitting on her dad's lap and saying, Dad, we need to pray that you get better. And she would make sure he did his rehab exercises because she said, there's still people that need to hear about Jesus. And that was what we kept thinking. There's people that haven't heard. We need to go back. And God permitted this to happen, but we want to go back to encourage the church. It was really important for us to get back, to let the church know that we were okay, to also let the church know that the trials that you go through don't need to destroy your faith, that God walks with you through it, and you can come out on the other side a stronger person. So we never really went through a time when we didn't want to go back. Our goal from the moment he was shot and we realized he was going to survive, from that moment on, our goal was to get back to Africa. And God saw us through that time, and God has allowed us to live there many years since this happened. We're listening to the story of Brent and Shelley Teague here on The Voice of the Martyrs Radio. We first heard this story in 2015, and as you listen today, I think you'll understand why we thought it was worth hearing again. Uh, Shelley, one of the things you said this morning as you shared in our VOM Chapel is uh, we had a feeling that persecution was coming to the country. Talk a little more about that. How did that feeling come up or, or what made you think, hey, this is going to be a place where there is persecution? Of course, I think one of the things was what we were seeing going on around us. Everything in, in Mali, in in um, Nigeria, Boko Haram, the Al-Qaeda of the Maghrib, different groups, radical groups. But also in the 15 years that we ministered there, we had noticed a difference. At the beginning, you you had resistance, but often places were wide open. You could go do an open-air crusade for for a an entire week, and people would come and listen. Well, historically for, for Niger, uh, it's been a lay Islamic state. When you say lay Islamic state, it means that they're not under strict Islamic law, and they also uh, permit their citizens to change religions if they want to. Other countries, that's not the case. And so there's been uh, the possibility there to witness, to preach. And so uh, Niger has been a kind of a unique in that way. And um, they've permitted uh, churches to be built and schools and this kind of thing. And so a lot of work has gone on there, although the country is very much um, Islamic. It was, it was hard to start a church. It took a long time to have a group of believers, but yet there was an openness there. Towards the last few years, right before we left, we noticed more opposition than we had ever had before. Before I used to go into the villages and teach, I teach the children there'd be no opposition whatsoever from the children, from the young people. The the parents might try to keep them from coming, but no physical attack. At the end, when we were there, we would I'd come back from the villages with little red marks or bruises where they'd been throwing stones or rubber flipping rubber bands at me and trying to get us to leave. There were times when we weren't even able to finish the program. We also found when you would go into a village you might be able to have a two-day meeting before the chief would even come and say, we feel like it's dangerous. We're afraid we're going to be attacked or you're going to be attacked. It's time to end the meetings. So we had just felt that something was happening and really began to pray that God would unite the church but strengthen the believers to, to withstand whatever came. But we were actually shocked when the news came out and we saw what was going. It shocked me as well, the intensity of the violence. Mm-hmm. It shocked me. 
the pressure that's there from northern Nigeria from these uh, radical extremist groups is there, and you have their branches within uh, Niger as well and, and next door in Mali. And so uh, we've always known the potential for this kind of violence was there. About 70 places of worship. When you see the stats, they'll change because some were actual church buildings. Others were house churches. Others were kind of more temporary. But about 70 places were burned. Um, you have churches. You have schools. You have orphanages. And what was shocking is that it, it happened like the same weekend across the country. And so uh, uh, for uh, many, many people, you know, you're at church one Sunday, and then the next Sunday there's no place there's of worship. There's no church. I mean, we're talking about churches that are in, in neighborhoods that, you know, are off the beaten track. Uh, when they came in and burned these churches, you have the actual neighbors of the church coming and helping to put out the fire. So you realize it's not the immediate neighbors doing this. And so, and the other thing that's interesting, and, uh, you know, can interpret however you want, but churches that were meeting in houses owned by wealthy Muslims weren't attacked. So those that were owned by Christians or owned by the church were attacked. So there's some kind of coordination, even though you, you when you have a mob mentality, things get out of hand. But there was some coordination to know where these churches were, which ones to attack, which ones not to attack, etc. Brent, some of these churches that were burned you helped build. I yes. mean, it's your blood, sweat, and tears that, that got destroyed. How, what's been your response? Have you asked God, okay, God, you know, you could have protected this work. Have you had that thought, or has it just been, hey, the Lord's doing what he's doing? And Well, I mean, the Lord is sovereign. Uh, we, you know, when you raise the funds, I mean, we're looking at about, in the work that we helped establish, about $300,000 in damages. That's a lot of money to raise, but it's not just that. I mean, the, the, the physical work of going in and purchasing land and building a church and planning a church and all of that. But, you know, what where we rejoice is that the actual believers weren't killed. And one of the things that you're reminded of is that the church isn't a building. The church is a community of believers. One of the pastors that called me said, you know, he said, one of the issues we've been having the past few years has been a lot of division in the body of Christ. And he said, some of the things that we were fighting about we got burned up in one day. Wow. And he said, I believe God's going to use this to unite us and to remind us of what the true focus should be and understand that it's the love of Christ, it's the unity in the spirit of Christ, it's the community of believers. That's the most important thing. Now, today God has you, um, has kind of shifted your ministry from Niger to Ivory Coast. Uh, talk a little bit about what you're doing there in Ivory Coast and uh, especially why that's such a strategic location uh, for gospel work right now. In the past, Ivory Coast was a real center for a lot of mission outreach, and the church uh, really has grown there and become very strong. Uh, right now, it's estimated uh, about 24, 25 percent of the population professes are professing Christians. Uh, but then we had a 12-year from 2000 to 2012, a civil unrest. The country was partitioned in two. Uh, the rebels took over the northern half of the country. During that time, uh, most of the Christians, we lost 300 churches were destroyed. Most of the Christians were forced to the south. And um, the north has become now predominantly Muslim. But where we see Ivory Coast as strategic is because of its economics. And people have come from all over for work. There are uh, about 12 million immigrants that have come, and it's estimated that 70% are Muslim. But it also means for us 
that nearly every unreached people group in West Africa is represented within the territories of Ivory Coast. And in countries where we can't openly preach or witness in the Ivory Coast, we can. So we have access to these unreached people groups somewhere. There's very few known believers. We have access to them. And so we think it's a very strategic place to be uh, to reach them. Let's talk a little bit about reaching Muslims for Christ, because, you know, our listeners, some of them have Muslim coworkers or Muslim neighbors that they would like to to share Christ with. How do you advise them to do that? How do you advise them to kind of open that door to be able to say, hey, let me tell you about Jesus? One of the things that I've found is that um, a lot of times we try to get into, like, theological debating and things. And that doesn't really work. You can, but both parties go away feeling like they won the debate. But what really impacts is personal testimony. Mm -hmm. And not sitting down and say, listen to my personal testimony of conversion, but in everyday life. I was sick. I was. I had such and such. I was prayed for, and God healed me. Or, you know, I had such a, a certain situation, and and I wasn't. I felt like I wasn't alone in the situation because Jesus is my friend, and that kind of personal connection with God, they don't have that relationship, and so that will that impacts greatly. The other thing that we found in West Africa, I don't know if it would be the same in the United States, but when we have major Christian holidays, it's an opportunity. And I know we're very family-oriented and private, but it's an opportunity to invite a Muslim coworker. Hey, would you like to see how we celebrate Christmas? We'd like to invite you over. These these are holidays or opportunities, mm-hmm. and it's a, not a church-type setting necessarily, but it's an opportunity to get together and then for to build a friendship and also to have opportunity to share these personal testimonies. But I think that personal relationship, and it doesn't matter who you are on earth, you're going to go through stuff. And uh, the difference we have is not that we don't go through trials and difficulties, but we're never alone. And that personal relationship is something they don't have and that you can only have through Jesus. Finally, we want to equip people to pray and particularly to pray for Western Africa and the countries where your heart is. How would you encourage people to pray or how would you advise them to pray? That Christians themselves would have a burden to reach out to their neighbors, to reach out to a people group that's a little unlike them from another tribe, but they're living there. They're their neighbors or they're in the next village to have a burden to go and share the gospel with them and to see churches planted in every city and every village of their country. And I think another thing that would be a good prayer request is that uh, God would uh, use the church in West Africa. So, for example, you've got uh, violence going on in northern Nigeria, or you've got it in, in, in Niger, different places. But you have displaced people, you have orphans, you have situations. But that God would help the the church in Africa to respond in a in a holistic and in a loving manner, and to really display the the love of Christ to reach out to those who are hurting and persecuted. You know, it's interesting that you encourage us to pray that the Christians will have a heart to reach out. Uh, I think that's a great prayer for American Christians, too, uh, that our churches will be full of people who have a heart to reach their neighbors and and reach uh, the next town over and and plant uh, the gospel, plant churches. So uh, Brent and Shelley Teague, thank you so much for sharing with us today uh, the amazing testimony of what God has done through you. Thank you for your service and your willingness uh, and for sharing with us. Thank you. It's a privilege to be here. We've been hearing from Brent and Shelley Teague sharing their dramatic story from the nation of Niger. You know, very few Americans have been attacked by Al-Qaeda and lived to tell about it. 
So it's amazing to hear how God rescued and provided for this couple when Brent was literally left for dead. I believe that hearing and thinking about stories like this one is going to encourage your faith and prepare you to face adversity. You can hear more like this story at our website, vomradio.net, or in the VOM Radio podcast stream, wherever you listen to podcasts. I hope you'll explore and listen to more conversations like this one with the Teagues. Again, that website, vomradio.net. Next week, we're going to give you a window into a different culture, a different way of thinking. We're going to talk about honor-shame cultures, which includes much of the Muslim world today, but it also mirrors the culture that Jesus himself grew up in. Audrey Frank is the author of a new book called Covered Glory, and she'll be here next week to tell us how Jesus speaks directly into the hearts of people in that honor-shame context. I hope you'll be back next week to join that conversation right here on the Voice of the Martyrs Radio Network.